We live in an age of political polarization and preference bubbles, of economic change, rising threats, and a rapidly changing world. Canada needs to stay relevant. We need more smart conversations. We need to dive into critical issues and big ideas with passion and unrestrained optimism. I'm Aaron O'Toole. Welcome to the Blue Skies Podcast. Welcome to Blue Skies. We're very fortunate today to have a leading conservative voice globally, but certainly a leading conservative voice in the United Kingdom to talk about politics across the pond. Canada, always watching with great interest our mother parliament in Westminster. We have a member of that parliament who has to vote probably in about 40 minutes, so we'll try and get this discussion underway. We're fortunate to have Lord Daniel Hannan, Baron Hannan of Kingsclear. He was a member of the European Parliament for 21 years, a leading voice in the debate with respect to Brexit and autonomy for the United Kingdom. He's also been an advisor on trade, a prolific author. And in December of 2020, he was nominated to the House of Lords by then Prime Minister Boris Johnson. And he's continued this advocacy for a strong United Kingdom, a strong Commonwealth. We've talked many times over the years over Kanzuk and the partnership between Canada and the United Kingdom an author of eight books, many I recommend. Uh, so we're very fortunate to have someone I call a friend, someone I respect a great deal, Lord Daniel Hannan. Dan, welcome to the Blue Skies. Thank you, Erin. And I do consider you a very good friend. Uh, we, we use that term very loosely in politics to mean someone I know a bit, but I really do consider you a, a proper bona fide mate. Well, and as a as a lawyer, a member of the bar in Ontario and a member of the bar in our, in our parliament, I would refer to you as my learned friend, which is usually what the King's Council gets as a courtesy. But your writing, your commentary on conservative politics generally is, is some of the most erudite, some of the most insightful. So let's break down the last 18 months, really, in UK politics. Uh, Canada has seen some upheaval. I was at the center, center of some of that upheaval. But certainly three prime ministers within the span of a year, a tumultuous set of, of leaderships, the fact that uh, Boris Johnson flew back and was almost going to offer himself again for the same job. Break down uh, that, that tumultuous time for the UK Tory party. And are the polls correct? Are things doomed for the coming election? I know you're an eternal optimist. Break down the, the last year for, for our listeners. Look, I mean, it's, it's difficult to be optimistic at the moment. If if I try and break it down, if I if I simplify it to one factor, it is the cost of the lockdowns and the unwillingness of successive leaders to come clean about the cost of the lockdowns or to flip that around their, their pretense that we can carry on as though we still had the 400 billion pounds that we dropped during the pandemic. And I just think that makes it incredibly difficult to be an incumbent and incredibly difficult to be a low tax or limited government candidate. Uh, the, the lockdown changed people's moods. It, it flicked switches in our, in our brains. It changed our brain chemistry, just made people more authoritarian, more wary, more introverted, more demanding of big government, uh, as, as earthquakes and wars and plagues always do, right? And... I'm afraid that just means that at the moment it is very, very difficult. So quickly to go through the, 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 the timescale, um, uh, Boris came in uh, to deliver Brexit. Uh, he was, I think people knew what they were buying, that he was going to be a maverick, he was going to be a, a disruptor, rule breaker. 
And in a way, they got exactly what they, they voted for. Uh, and it was those qualities that allowed him to break the parliamentary deadlock, to deliver Brexit, uh, to get a much faster vaccine rollout in the UK than in other Western countries, because he, he ignored the usual procurement thing and, and put a, a good free market capitalist in charge. But then the mood changed. The mood changed during and as a response to the lockdowns. We became a much more prissy and puritanical uh, and censorious people. And so Boris, who'd been elected as a kind of jovial, Falstaffian figure, suddenly found himself in a country full of Malvolios, right? He was, or, or to, to switch the metaphor, he was a, he was a, a cavalier in a suddenly roundhead nation. Uh, and in the end, that, that did for him. We then had uh, a, a, an attempt to try and cut spending in the incarnated by Liz Truss, who lasted 42 days in office, who got in saying some things that would have once been considered basic conservative orthodoxy, right? If we've got a recession coming, cut spending, cut taxes, uh, uh, do some supply side reforms to boost competitiveness and growth. Nobody wants to hear that at the moment. Like I say, the, the country is in a big government mood. Uh, and so then we had, uh, we now have Rishi Sunak, who is a, a gentleman, a very, very sweet natured man, um, uh, struggling to get on top of events. And, and I, I don't envy him or, or any other incumbent at the moment. Well, you've uh, taken us through very quickly uh, a crazy ride. You're also the first person on the blue skies to use Falstaffian as an adjective uh, to describe someone. Um, is that also the Falstaffian nature of it? After all those tensions of the lockdowns, when some of the events at number 10 leaked out, was that um, same sort of jovial Falstaffian nature that I think people loved about the, uh, the, the somewhat eccentric Prime Minister Johnson, was that then uh, held against him and that mood where the public was very easily marshaled one way or another based on lockdowns and fear about COVID, was that central to his undoing or was there a lot of palace intrigue where people's ambitions were, were also at the root of this? Well, it's never one thing. I don't need to tell you of all people, Erin. It's never <laughs> one thing, right? Uh, the, the Conservatives had been in power for the better part of a decade. And as you know, when a, when a party has been around for that long, it has a lot of ex-ministers on the backbench who, you know, know that uh, they're not going anywhere and they might as well roll the dice. So, so Boris had that as a, as a background. But look, and, and, and also there was a frustration among, um, the, the, I have to say now, the minority of conservatives who still think that we need to be cutting taxes and cutting spending, that he was, he, he's very bad at, at uh, risking short-term unpopularity, uh, even if it means long-term prosperity. So there was that in the background. But the, the issue that really brought him down was exactly what you say. Um, I remember a neighbour of mine in the in, in the shop in the little village, in, in Kingsclare, the village where I live, um, saying to me in the queue for newspapers, saying, um, your man, as she always called him, your man was gallivanting around and I was locked up at home and I couldn't see anyone. And I said, but hang on, yes, you could. I mean, theoretically, you couldn't. But I remember you you were regularly going off to see your daughters. And in fact, I remember you having your neighbours round for drinks in your garden. And good on you, right? I mean, it was, these, were, these were stupid restrictions. I, I could tell that she'd wiped that from her memory. And I think she was very typical. So he became this kind of sin eater, this kind of scapegoat. The, the country was in a, in a fragile mood coming out of the lockdown. 
there was the beginning, just the tiniest promptings of a suggestion that we may have overdone it a bit. We may have been panicked into something of an overreaction and people wanted someone on whom to take out their frustration, at which point, conveniently shambling, disheveled into their line of vision comes the, the, the untucked figure uh, of the PM. And I'm afraid that was just incredibly bad luck from his point of view. Yes. And do you think that this has permanently changed the conservative grassroots? Because I think you, you commented earlier on how difficult it is in a time of crisis or a pandemic for a party that's about limited government, uh, more self-reliance, uh, less of a nanny state, to have to clamp down on, on you know, the numbers at events, travel, these sorts of things. Did that then turn the grassroots of, of our parties uh, upside down and, and change the mood? Because I'll certainly, from my own perspective, we were struggling with a federal provincial dynamic where we, in many cases, didn't agree with the degree of restrictions in some of our mm-hmm. provinces, yet some of them were, were being governed by our provincial cousins. So we didn't want to take our, our eye off criticizing the federal Trudeau government and wading into provincial restrictions. But we noticed that over time, some of our grassroots, more of the libertarian element, uh, became more and more militant against any form of, of lockdown and then any form of public authority, be they health, be they public safety. Has that been similar in your grassroots, Dan? Yes. And I mean, I, I think it's it's an almost impossible thing to bridge. Um, I mean, I, I, I watched with uh, horror and sympathy uh, as I saw um, our friend Jason Kenney trying to hold together two completely impossible positions in, in Alberta. And, and, and this has been played out all all over the world. I, I was in Australia two weeks ago. The, the, the right is losing almost every state election there, because there's just this mood for more money, more government, more intervention. Um, it's a little bit like like after the Second World War. I mean, I, this, this, I think, is the moment when Britain began really to diverge from the, the, the rest of the Anglosphere, uh, because we were just subject to the conscription and the mobilization for longer. And it created a demand for big government after 1940. So, you know, we had identity cards until 1952, we had food rationing until 1954, we had full conscription until 1960, not because the public was prepared to sustain these things, but because the, the, the public was demanding it and voting for it, you know, and I'm afraid it is, it's a well-observed phenomenon, and it, it, it makes life very hard for parties of the centre-right. Uh, against that, in your case, it's also very hard for incumbent parties. Sadly, in our case, as as in the federal government in Australia, those two things were combined, uh, and I, I I think it would be it's an incredibly uphill struggle to win from here. Uh, honestly, it would have been difficult anyway. I was I was trying to think back to any occasion when a party in the UK has won five successive general elections. Uh, it, it did happen between. Uh, just, just after the Napoleonic Wars, uh, we won we won five successive elections up to the up to the eighteen thirty realignments. Uh, it's never happened in the age of mass democracy, so that, that was going to be a big ask anyway, right? Mm-hmm. Even without all of this, um, uh, you never know, right? So many rules in politics have been broken recently, uh, and there isn't any great enthusiasm for Keir Starmer. But I think at the moment it is it is looking pretty bleak. And with conservatives globally, we do see the impact of the pandemic and and kind of an erosion of trust in some cases for institutions or or sort of public pronouncements on on vaccine efficacy, these sorts of things. 
But we've also seen the conservative parties in the UK and Canada and in the United States, in Australia as well, deal with populism and conservatism, which sometimes run opposite one another. We found that with really the the sort of slow dismantling of globalization, it was hard to maintain strong commitment to free trade when uh, a lot of working class voters, trades level people in the conservative party that would be culturally conservative, were starting to want to have much more protectionism. You know, you see this strain um, really challenging some of the free trade principles that you and I used to talk about with Kanzuk and other things. Is that going to be a permanent shift? Would you know, I think that's always been true. Honestly, I think free trade is counterintuitive, right? And it's therefore always unpopular. Uh, the, the great Whig uh, historian Macaulay in 1820 said, free trade, the greatest benefit that a government can bestow upon a people is in every country unpopular, right? It was true 200 years ago and has been true, I would say, at every intervening point in the, the two centuries between because it runs up against our instincts and intuitions, right? We're, we're a hunter-gatherer people. Uh, we didn't evolve for this world of, of skyscrapers and superabundance. In our, in our genes, we're still on the, the savannas of, of Pleistocene Africa. So we want to have a hoard of food to see us through the winter, right? The, the idea of being able to buy it from invisible strangers does not come naturally. So it, that is a really good example of where... Uh, you need to think, if you're a free market uh, politician, a conservative politician of any kind, you need to say to yourself, what counts is not the popularity of this policy when polled in isolation. What counts is the popularity of the effect of this policy once we've applied it. Every one of Margaret Thatcher's uh, privatizations was unpopular. Indeed, all of her economic reforms, even the tax cuts, were unpopular. The lifting of the exchange control, everything she did. When, when you look at the opinion polls, everyone was against it but nobody wanted to go back because they could see that it had worked. Now, that's something that in this country we've got really bad at recently. Uh, we're frightened off by opinion polls from doing things that we know are right, but that poll badly. The classic example being uh, the attempt that Liz Truss made uh, during her brief premiership to bring the top rate of tax back to the rate where it had been throughout the, the Tony Blair years. So the outgoing Gordon Brown government hiked the, rate, the top rate of tax as a kind of booby trap, like, like, like those retreating Russians in, uh, in Ukraine, booby trapping yeah. their, their positions, right? He, he raised it to a level where it would bring in less revenue because he knew that it would be very difficult for an incoming conservative government to reverse his change, which, by the way, turned out to be exactly correct. The, the, the booby trap blew up uh, in the face of Liz Truss because, oh, you're on the side of millionaires and blah, 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 even though... Plainly, cutting the, the rate was going to end up really some very basic Laffer curve stuff, bringing in more money. Everyone accepted that uh, in the Conservative Party. But they they scattered at the first criticism. And that's the problem we've got. People are ju- I, don't, I don't know if it's the age of populism. I don't know if it's the proliferation of social media. But people are much less willing to sustain short-term unpopularity uh, in return for long-term prosperity. I, I want to say one other thing, though, about the populism. You know, I, I write, a, I write a, a newspaper column, and during the two years of the intermittent lockdowns, for the first time, I had to really start reading uh, primary source medical papers, because for the first time in my career, I, I had to really get on top of the, the science, rather than just reading reports of it. And what I found is that on almost any contentious aspect of the pandemic and the lockdown, you could find perfectly sincere, well-argued, authoritative papers 
arguing 180 degree opposite positions. Uh, are face masks effective? Uh, can children pass it on to adults? Does closing schools make any difference? Uh, should you get vaccinated if you've already got natural immunity? I mean, you name it, I, I could find you really convincing papers on both sides. And I, I felt a new sympathy with the politicians struggling because when people say, why don't you follow the science? There, you know, there is no such thing. This is all very unsettled. But the result of that is people saw authoritative scientific figures contradicting themselves, saying one thing one week and another the next. You know, by the way, a good scientist should do that. If the, if the, mm -hmm. if the data changes, you move on, right? But the result of that, I think, has been uh, a huge knock in the authority that would have previously been accorded to the, these these figures, um, and people can remember that we were told, "Don't wear masks; it's worse than you know." And then, and then they would, "Oh, you absolutely must." Um, and and the, the thing that I really do think is was a huge blunder is, you know, we now know that the the vaccine, although it was very good at at keeping you out of hospital and it was very good at keeping you alive if you were in a vulnerable category, was not good at stopping transmission. And Pfizer knew that at the time, and the WHO knew it at the time. In other words, the, the, this whole edifice that we built of restrictions, the travel restrictions, the ridiculous, you know, Arrive Can app that you had, uh, the, the the rules on where you were, like, were all built on a lie. Because if 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 it wasn't, if the vaccine didn't keep other people safe. If it was all just your own risk, then on what basis was the government intervening? Now, it's going to take quite a long time, I think, for authority to recover its its legitimacy. Yeah, I agree. I think part of the erosion of trust for some of these institutions like public health officers here in Canada was this flip-flopping on things. We had the health minister saying, oh, closing the borders uh, isn't going to stop the spread of a pandemic. Of course, they've been doing that since the Middle Ages. And eventually they did do that. They flipped on, on, on mask wearing. And I do think the language that was used by public health around social distancing, meaning stop the spread, you know, flatten the curve, all that language, they then applied that to the rollout of the vaccines. When, as you say, Dan, the vaccines knew that it was going to take down the severity of being struck with COVID and particularly protect vulnerable. But in terms of stocking, stopping the spread, the science really didn't support that and the, and how it played out did as well. My big fear really is what about something bigger down the road? I think we're now in a position where there's such a lack of trust in some of these institutions that if we see something much more severe in the future, I think we will have a hard time getting up to 75, 80% vaccination rates that, that Canada was able to get to um, because of some of this mismanagement. And in our case, of course, Trudeau called a, an election in the middle of it, despite a vote of parliament not to, and then used the vaccine mandate as a wedge. And it was very hard to be pro-vaccine but anti-mandate, yeah. which, which I tried to be. Um, you were right. I mean, that should be the yeah. basic conservative position. And it is very difficult. And in fact, one of the things that really worries me about elements of the right is that even the uh, the people who were kind of anti-mandate uh, and, and anti-compulsion are now wanting to use compulsion the other way. So if I look at, uh, at uh, DeSantos in, in Florida, you know, okay, vindicated in many ways. He resisted the pressure. He kept Florida open. Good on him. But I get a little bit uneasy as a conservative when I see a fellow conservative saying, you as a private business may not require 
you know, people who come into your shop to wear a mask or whatever. You know, yeah. no, no time for, for masks myself. I was delighted when we could get rid of them. But surely that's a question of property rights, isn't it? And wasn't there a time when conservatives would have just taken that for granted? The, the, the distance between I don't like this thing and let's ban this thing a lot of people fail to to to, to don't notice it, but if you think about it, that, that distance contains the entirety of what we mean by a free society. <laughs> yeah. No, and I've seen there's the this polarized age we're in, not just politics, we see it in families, we see it in workplaces. It's leading to a decline in basic courtesy or civility, where it's almost um if you see a a, a mask, which is that person's choice, um there's almost a, a rush to condemn them after such fatigue. So I, I'm hoping it'll work through the system. But before we leave um, the situation in the UK, you mentioned that there's really no huge uh, swooning love for Keir Starmer. Where is he going to be? Because certainly he replaced the most left Marxist, quite frankly, strange leader Labour has mm. had uh, in the modern age in Jeremy Corbyn. And there are people within his party that would would like to have another referendum on Brexit. There are, are still some sort of some of those Corbynites with very hard left positions, both on the domestic economy and on international affairs. Where is he going to go? You know, with 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 twenty point leads in the in the polls, and as you said, it's hard for a government to be reelected. Uh, you know, after four, five, six times, who is Keir Starmer? Is he going to be a Tony so, Blair type Labour leader, or so? That's a really good question. Um, you know, the, the, the cheap political point is to say he spent all of 2019 telling us to make Corbyn prime minister, which is true. Uh, and, you know, and, and I'm sure he feels embarrassed about that. But Corbyn is no longer a member of the party. And I think it is to the, you know, never mind the Labour Party, it is to the credit of the country. We, uh, we have in common with Canada but but, we, we, but this makes us different from, from almost everywhere in Europe. We have never allowed an anti-Semitic party to get anywhere near power. Uh, we have had, as you've had, as every country has, the odd anti-Semite, but they'd never until then infiltrated one of the major parties and they paid a huge price for it. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and I was very proud of, uh, of the number of, of regular Labour voters who said, look, this is just, this, this is beyond the bounds of, uh, of normal politics. Well, where does where does all this leave us with, with Brexit? I mean, let me let me make a point. You'll you'll know this, Erin, but uh, for for Canadians watching the podcast who rely on the Canadian media, I mean, the, the, look, these have been very tough times. You know, we had we had the, the the pandemic, we had the very expensive lockdowns, we've now got the war in Ukraine. Given everything, Britain is not doing so badly. Right? Our, our uh, our growth rates compared to the EU have been pretty good, despite having had a, a, a worse experience with the lockdown. So our, our Brexit referendum was in 2016. And we were told during the referendum, if you vote leave, there'll be an immediate recession, spike in unemployment, stock market collapse, etc. The opposite happened. Uh, unemployment fell to its lowest ever level. The stock exchange rose. Uh, the economy outgrew the EU. Uh, much to the annoyance of the people who'd made these predictions. They couldn't quite disguise their, their wish that the country would collapse, which is never a great look. Um, but the same happened in 2017. We outgrew the EU. Uh, the same happened in 2018 and in 2019. Then in 2020, we had the lockdown. Uh, and 
you, you can almost directly correlate the severity of the lockdown to the economic impact. So, you know, the Swedens and the Floridas did pretty well. I mean, of course, they were affected, right? They're, they're still trading within the global system. So it, it wasn't that they didn't have any bump at all. But they, they don't have a, a smoking crater where their economy used to be. They don't have the massive debt levels that the rest of us have. Then there were the kind of in the middle countries, Germany, you know, Netherlands, Australia, I'd probably put in that category. Uh, and then in, in Europe, there was the, 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 the countries that, that uh, went furthest, which was Spain, the UK initially. And so our, our economy tanked in 2020. It was really it, nothing to do with Brexit. And the, the proof that it was nothing to do with Brexit is that in 2021 and in 2022, we outgrew the EU again. Uh, and in fact, in both of those years, we're the fastest growing economy in the G7. Um, but there is this fundamental dishonesty from a lot of the anti-Brexit people that they kind of lump all of those problems together and say, you see, Brexit isn't working, right? So in 2020, weirdly, all of the predictions that they'd made pre-2016 because of COVID started coming true, right? There really were grounded aeroplanes air, air, uh, and, and empty shelves and shortages and all that. But, you know, as there were all over the world because of this uh, this pandemic. So, uh, you know, what, what I'd say is that there is the, the, the sense that people have picked up because the UK media that are the most widely read overseas are the ones that were that were the most hysterically anti-Brexit, uh, the Financial Times, uh, the, uh, the Economist and the BBC. Uh, when I travel abroad, I, you know, I, I don't recognise the country that I'm reading about. Uh, actually, things are not bad given the global situation, uh, the energy crisis, the Ukraine war and all the rest of it. Uh, and so I don't see any, I don't see any prospect of, of, of Brexit being reversed. I don't see any prospect of, a, of an incoming Labour government holding another referendum. It's, it's, it would just be uh, electorally catastrophic. What I do see the possibility of is Labour shadowing all of the EU rules, uh, staying within Brussels' regulatory orbit in the hope that in future they might, you know, that might prepare the path for re-entry. And that, although I don't think it would work, I don't think we will go back in, it would still be hugely damaging in the attempt because the whole point of Brexit, well, not sorry, not the whole point, the point of Brexit is to get our sovereignty and our independence back. But a, a secondary benefit of Brexit should be having better regulations and a better trade policy. And if we're not prepared to diverge from Brussels standards, then we kiss goodbye to those benefits. That's an interesting overview because you do hear the naysayers on, on Brexit now. Going back to the vote uh, in 2016, then the implementation was under Prime Minister May. Uh, we've talked about three other prime ministers, but not too uh, distant past. We had Ms. May, who had voted against Brexit, but was then implementing it. Do I have that correctly? And yeah. was, was the implementation part of what became the sort of negative start uh, that has led to this public opinion? Brexit was an instruction from the British people to get us out in the way that you'd instruct a, a lawyer. Uh, but the people then charged with the implementation were all fundamentally against it. Uh, and I don't, I don't just mean uh, Theresa May. I mean the, the whole civil service, the entire state machine. Uh, <clears throat> they resisted it at every step of the way. And this got to the point where uh, in 2017, Theresa May called an election which turned out to be a catastrophic error, lost her majority. There was then an anti-Brexit majority in the House of Commons. Uh, Labour and the Lib Dems plus enough 
kind of rebel Tory Europhiles. They had a, a, a blocking majority. And they declared, and this is often forgotten, but it, you can't understand where we are now without recalling this. They didn't just declare, they passed a law saying, in effect, we will not leave the EU except on terms that Brussels likes. Now, those were not the exact words they used. The words they used were, we will not allow a no-deal Brexit. But if you think about it, that, that, that is identical to saying we'll only leave on terms that you agree, right? You're, you're mm -hmm. immediately inviting the other side uh, to dictate the terms of your departure, which, of course, the EU did. So up until that point, there'd be no talk of the Northern Ireland Protocol. It, it did never occur to anyone in Brussels that, that Britain would accept an internal border or allow part of its territory to be governed from overseas. I mean, you know, these are, the, the, these are not things that normal countries do. But once they had this invitation from the House of Commons saying, go on, we're not going to leave except on terms that you're happy with. They said, well, in that case, let's make the terms so painful that you might change your mind. And th that's the background, which is why, you know, we should be very leery of the people who voted for that legislation, the MPs who, who seized the, the legislative timetable like that and, and pushed through this, it was called the Ben Act, this, uh, uh, this law saying we'll only leave if you're happy. When they now have the goal to turn around and say, well, yeah, it's not going as well as you said. I mean, yeah, you know, it, the, now, it, you know, I, I, I think most voters can see through that. Right. Now, fast forwarding back to the present, there's not much time before a general election has to be called. Um, Sunak, who was pro-Brexit, hasn't really made it a, a, a part of his premiership. Will he try and show a path to prosper in the post-Brexit, post-pandemic world? Or will he soft-pedal this because of public opinion now and, and result in this kind of being a, a constant thorn for a future government, be yeah. it warrior labor? Or will he try and, and sell the merits of it? So I, that's a really good question, Erin. Um, he 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 gets it. He's he's a very very clever guy, mm -hmm. uh, and in private, his analysis of of you know the way we are overgoverned and the uh, the limitations of uh, of non market interventions are brilliant. I mean, he he absolutely understands what needs to happen. He was very very good on the trade agenda. He was very very pro, um, you know, serious unilateral lifting of, of restrictions. He wanted to go much further with the Commonwealth. So he's, he's, he's great on all that. Uh, but he is constrained, as politicians are, by, by public opinion. And uh, you know, uh, the fundamental problem is the thing I said right at the beginning. If, if people don't understand that we have run out of money, then they will assume that any spending cut, any tax rise, or indeed any price rise, is somehow a choice, a sadistic decision inflicted on them by a government that for some reason doesn't like them, um, rather than being what it is, which is a, you know, the, the reality of, of, of the lockdown catching up with us. If, if you pay people for the better part of two years to stay home and not produce yeah. anything, and you print money to cover the difference, you're going to end up in the situation we're in. But I, I just don't think people uh, are ready to accept that. And there are unscrupulous politicians who will come along and say, yeah, no, no, that's all that's all nonsense. You know, I, I've got this magic wand called wealth tax or windfall tax or something. I can make all this go away. 
you know, we've, we've both been around elected politics long enough to know that there is a chunk of the electorate who will always prefer this, the sweet falsehoods to the bitter truths. In many ways, that explains eight years of Justin Trudeau, but I won't get into that. So we're in a position where we could see the current Prime Minister Sunak sort of soft pedal Brexit and the post-Brexit economy and a Keir Starmer having the same approach. And so will the public will the public mood with respect to Brexit lock in with this kind of element where almost the same number that voted for Brexit now might say they regret that vote? Uh, or do you see an event possibly allowing the, the British economy to, to seize the opportunity? I see that, that you spoke recently on the Australian-New Zealand trade deal, that the government does seem to be trying to tie up some free trade opportunities for British exports. But will there be something that regalvanizes public opinion. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I don't think it's fair to say that Sunak is in the same place as Starmer. I, 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 he's constrained by public opinion, but his heart is definitely uh, in the right place. He, he is a free market conservative. Uh, in fact, until very late last night, I was uh, in a debate here on repealing the 4,000 odd bits of EU law that have been stuck on our statute books for the last six and a half years, right? And all the people who want to go back in are furiously resisting this, saying, oh, you know, because they, they, they won't admit that it's because they want to go back in. They say, oh, it's, you know, it's giving too much power to the executive and each of these should be properly debated by parliament. You know, a position they never took when they were all imposed on us without any parliamentary scrutiny at all by the EU, right? Suddenly they've all become, you know, great champions <laughs> of parliamentary supremacy. So, I, you know, we're, we're trying to, we are trying to get to a place where we can deregulate and uh, and take advantage of, uh, uh, of some of the opportunities. And we're particularly doing that on, on financial services regulations and also on things like gene editing. It's been very, very slow, uh, but it, it, it is it is sort of happening. My worry is that Starmer will undo all of that um, because it, it, he doesn't think he can take us back in, but he, you know, what the row about the retained EU law is about and what the row about the Northern Ireland Protocol is about is really about Britain continuing to follow EU rules and regulations as a prelude to rejoining. In fact, Michel Barnier said last week, yeah, the door is open as long as you don't diverge too much because that will make, you know, and the, the, the Europhiles here uh, can hear that. So, you know, that that's that's my worry. Not that not that we, I, and I don't think it will work, by the way, because this has been what they've been, been trying to do in Norway ever since the, uh, the Norwegian people rejected membership in the 1994 referendum. They've been trying to shadow the EU so that they can say, look, we're doing everything anyway. We might as well have that. It, it, I don't think it's going to work, but the attempt could be hugely damaging. Well, on a personal level, though, it must be fulfilling for you now to be in the House of Lords debating the removal of some of these regulations after being in the European Parliament for 21 <laughs> years advocating. Is there is there a sense of... The majority is um, about the same. I mean, I, 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 <laughs> I, I was in as much of a minority last night uh, as, I, <laughs> as I was in Brussels, like, like Ishmael, every man's hand against me. Uh, but... Um, uh, look, no country ever over the long term got poorer as a result of taking its own decisions, right? More independence is, is a good thing. Um, uh, I've noticed um, in the last couple of years, really, it's a sort of post-lockdown, post-BLM thing that um, everywhere, including in Britain, um, the, the new villain of the piece is, is Britain and the British Empire, which is every bit as bad as the Nazis. And we've been cast as this kind of 
like the sort of Alan Rickman role in every <laughs> movie. Um, but one of the things that distinguished the, the, the British imperial moment from pretty much all of the others is that it, the empire had a self-dissolving quality. Uh, there was, you, right from the start, you had these people saying temporary stewardship because you know, the, the, the British national identity is tied up with the idea of self-rule and, and parliamentary self-rule. And, I, you know, it, it, it's worked out for every country where it's been tried. It'll, it'll work out for us. You know, there's a great book uh, on that, Lord Hannon. It's called Inventing Freedom, How English-Speaking <laughs> Peoples Made the Modern World, written written by you. And I have a very nice copy that you signed for me. Okay, we only have a couple of minutes before you have to leave. Final thoughts on on Canada, because... I'll tell you, there's a lot of us, particularly in the in the veteran and the national security sort of foreign policy hawk field, uh, of which maybe I'm the dean in Parliament now. Really worried that with AUKUS and a and a concentration between the UK, the US, and Australia, New Zealand, um, discussions of the Quad, and we don't seem to be part of that close Five Eyes partnership like we once were. For years, Trudeau was completely offside on on China and Huawei and decisions that many of our Five Eyes and Kanzuk type partners were making. But all of these new movements, particularly to confront the rise of China, is Canada being left out in your view? And what should we do to remain relevant? Because I do think we have to keep those transatlantic bonds. You know, Tr Churchill called us the linchpin between uh, the UK and the United States. I don't think that's the case anymore. But how do we remain relevant in this shifting dynamic globally? I, I, I think, he, first, first of all, Canada is not irrelevant, even with Trudeau, who is not my favorite politician. But I mean, Canada with the UK was taking a stronger line in Ukraine than Europe was, or, or, or initially than Biden was. Um, but look, the, the door is open, right? Caucus uh, would be a much easier and more euphonic uh, acronym than AUKUS. <laughs> right? we've, 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 we've set it up so that there's, a, there's an easy place to, to slot you guys in. Uh, I hope, following an election. Um, and what goes for, for defence, I think, go, goes also for trade. The UK has signed pretty ambitious uh, free trade agreements with Australia and New Zealand. I'd like to go further, but, you know, the, we're, we're certainly way better off than we were before. Um, Canada has hung back from that uh, for, for all the reasons that you're familiar with. Um, but I, I hope that that would change under a, a conservative government in Canada. And uh, what I'd really like to see, it, uh, I'd, I'll be very disappointed if, if the UK doesn't join the Trans-Pacific Partnership this year, or the Comprehensive and Progressive, as, as Trudeau insisted on calling it. Uh, <laughs> and I, I think that within, within CPTPP, there's an opportunity for a Kanzuk grouping that would be more ambitious go deeper and further and particularly uh, would would include movements on mobility. There should be a fundamental assumption that you can come and work in my country without needing a special visa and vice versa. I'm not talking about benefits or anything like that, just the fundamental right to take a job. And that is that is so popular in, in all of the Kansas countries. It, it is the single most popular policy that could be easily implemented, but that for some reason hasn't been. Now, you particularly, Erin, uh, have a, a real sense of sort of, you, you have ownership on this. You were the first mainstream politician to make Kanzuk your policy, to popularize the, uh, the acronym, to make it uh, 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 an issue uh, around the world. So I very much hope that with a future conservative uh, government in Canada that we can, we can make uh, 
progress on this? Because I think quite apart from being a good thing in itself, I think it will hugely improve our relations vis-a-vis the United States. I think, it, you know, together we would be a, a very, very significant bloc. I agree 100%. And uh, in fact, in my early discussions of Kanzek, that's how you and I became good friends, because you have been a champion on working together within the Anglosphere, the, the Kanzuk uh, group of nations, with the highest level of, of values, adherence to liberty, our parliamentary tradition. We fought and died together. It's already unofficially been part of our, our shared histories. We should really take it to the next level. And I was on a call just yesterday with a, a young student who brought up Kanzuk and how fascinated they would be to study in the UK, perhaps work for a year, then return home. I think that's something with labor scarcity and with aspirational countries like ours wanting to do more together. I think it's a natural next step. Well, so, you know, I had I had the great pleasure of uh, getting a, a, a sneaky weekend in of skiing in Whistler uh, last month. And I, I felt very much that I was in Kanzuk there. <laughs> All Australians. Australian or, or Kiwi or British, uh, which was great. <laughs> and, 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 and they didn't really feel that they were abroad. I mean, it was, you know, or they, I mean, they kind of were on one level, but it wasn't fully foreign, if you see what I mean. And, and uh, you know, given, given everything we've been through together, and by the way, not just what we've been through together, but the, the interoperability of our economies and the, the, the potential for growth. I think this is an idea whose time is coming. I, I, I'm hopeful. I look, I mean, I, I, I don't know when your election is going to be. The sooner the better. But there may be, if I'm right to have been pessimistic about our chances here, we don't actually need to have an election Technically, the, the latest we could go is January 2025. So there may be a moment when there is a Tory government in Canada and a Tory government uh, in the UK and touch wood, maybe even in, in New Zealand, uh, uh, which is facing the polls quite soon. I think that would be enough. Um, mm-hmm. I think we, we, that there'll be that narrow window and we could use it. I, I can't imagine that uh, the Australian Labour government would stand against it. I don't think they'd be particularly keen on setting it up, but they're, they're not going to object to it. Uh, so there, there may be this moment if we play our cards wisely. I agree. I think there'd be enough uh, if Pierre wins, which I think he will, to set up a secretariat and start those simple things of, of people-to-people relations, trade in, in goods, people, and ideas. And I think you have been trading in great ideas and conservative ideas for many years Lord Hannon. So thank you very much for being on the Blue Skies. I don't want you to have to dash over to, 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 to vote in the House of Lords, but I'm very happy to see you're there. I know you uh, your speeches sometimes get shared because they're so well delivered and so well researched. So thank you for bringing your, your thoughts and your Falstaffian uh, jo- jovial presence to the Blue Skies podcast today. Thank you very much. Yeah, by the way, it's an important vote this because um, uh, it's about the right to protest. Which, which I strongly support, but there is also a right not to protest, right? I have the right not to be dragged into somebody else's protest by their uh, antisocial behaviour. So I'm, I'm going to be voting with feeling. But thank you very much, Aaron. It's lovely to catch up with you. God bless you. Uh, and, and we will always owe you a debt for having put Kanzuk on the agenda. Thank you, Dan. Best to your family. Thanks again for being on Blue Skies.